The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it up to uh, Mark chapter 9. And if you can multitask, um, you'll see one of these uh, probably sitting on the chair next to you. Um, One of the things that we've been talking about over the past, uh, really over the past several years is, is we haven't done anything in the past several years regarding Holy Week. We've had people asking us about doing a, we should do a communion service on Thursday. We should have a good Friday service. So as we, as we talked um, and have been talking over the past several months about uh, Easter here at Westway Christian Church, um, we kind of decided that this was the year that we were going to celebrate Holy Week. And, uh, and if you look on, I don't know if it's the front or the back, if you look on the side that has the, all, the, all the words on it, you'll see a list out of each day what happens. Now, um, you'll notice there's nothing on Wednesday. Uh, scripture is silent on Wednesday uh, from Holy Week. And you'll notice there's nothing on Saturday. Um, and that's because Saturday gets one verse devoted to it, and that's at the end of the day. So we are not having something planned here in the building on Wednesday or Saturday. But each night during Holy Week, we have a, a different thing planned. They're each going to last about an hour with the exception of Tuesday night. We're doing something called the Tabernacle Experience. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be converting our auditorium um, to walk people through the different elements of the Old Testament Tabernacle and the Temple But in order to do that, you have to sign up. There are um, some different time slots. It's going to take about 75 minutes to go through the whole thing. I think there are six or seven time slots available. And if that's something that you want to sign up for, I would encourage you. You'll be able to sign up for that in the lobby starting today. So if you are here, um, you will be able to sign up for that and pick a time slot. Um, We're limiting it to 15 people per time slot. um, Just because in order for everyone to get the most out of this, um, we we really need to limit that. And then starting tomorrow, we'll post a link on Facebook. We're going to send out an email and all of those places so you can sign up online. And we just encourage you to sign up so we know how many people are, are coming so we can make plans and all that kind of stuff. So this is something that, um, that we're really looking forward to, um, really to be able to place into context more of what happens on, uh, on Easter Sunday. Because like everything else that we talk about on Sunday mornings, like Easter wasn't an isolated thing. There's more to Christianity. There's more to our faith than just, than just Easter Sunday. But today we're talking about Mark chapter 9. And as I've, been, as I've been going through this series, one of the things that I do each week as I read and pray and study and have different conversations is I read the chapter and I break down the chapter to like one or two different sentences. And what I, what I do is I kind of create this, this flow of the story so I can remember as I start on the next chapter of what we're going to talk about, like, how does this, how does this piece fit? And, and you might call that chapter summaries, and that's not new to a person like me. That's not new to a, a Bible college student. I remember when I graduated from high school, I went to Toccoa Falls College right out of high school, and I had um, Dr. Ludwigson's Old Testament class right after lunch. And let me tell you, that combination was the worst thing in history, Um, because I think Dr. Ludwigson was actually alive during the time of the Old Testament, and his plan uh, for class, imagine after lunch, his plan after class was just to read through the Old Testament. So we would go to class... And he would just start reading. 
And like Genesis was, it was interesting, but by the time we got to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just like in your Bible reading plan in February when you hit that, it was even worse listening to someone um, read that for us. And then what he would assign us to do is he would assign us to write chapter summaries. So our homework for, for the week was write chapter summaries of this, this book, all of these different chapters. And you, like I, would have been tempted to cheat. And you know the little heading at the top of each chapter? Like that would be the easiest thing in the world. But again, since he was alive during the time of the Old Testament, he knew, he knew that we were going to do that. Um, so chapter summaries was something that was ingrained in me. And I've grown, I've grown to love them. I've grown to, to see how the story fits together. Because one of the things that, um, that, that we believe uh, here at uh, Westway Christian Church is that the words and the sentences and the paragraphs and the sections and the chapters and the books of the Bible aren't in isolation. They refer to things that have happened before and they set up what's going to happen next. So it's really important for us as we read and we study the Bible, it's really important for us to keep in mind the big picture of the Bible. Because if we don't, we're going to read little sections, we're going to read a sentence, we're going to read a paragraph, and we're going to be tempted to like think that that's all, all who Jesus was, or that's the only part of the story. And when we think about some of the more difficult passages of the Bible that we've read, and, and next week is one of those weeks when we hit Mark chapter 10. There are some, there are some hard to swallow verses in Mark chapter 10. So what we need to do, what we need to remember is they fit into a larger story. It's kind of like, think of a, think of a movie series like the Star Wars series. Nine, well, there's more than nine movies, 11 or 12 movies long. And to just watch any one of them in isolation is going to give you a skewed mindset of the larger story. So we want to keep that larger story together as a cohesive story. And the whole time the Bible is revealing to us the reality of who Jesus is. So this is my little flow of Mark up to this point. So chapter one, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah. So that sets the pace, that sets the tone for every other thing that we're going to read in the gospel of Mark. That first sentence, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Chapter two, what does Messiah mean? Who is he? Why does he do the things he does? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? Here's chapter three. Jesus's behaviors create tension and this tension demands a response. We see Jesus doing certain things and all of these people around him are responding. They're either divided against him or they will be united with him. Chapter four, Jesus teaches what obedience looks like. Chapter five, Jesus demonstrates what obedience looks like. Chapter six, Jesus acts out of compassion. Chapter seven, Jesus confronts our inner realities, our sinfulness and our separation from God because of our sinfulness. Chapter 8, we read this last week. We talked about this last week. Trusting Jesus has implications. Give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow him. See, that's the context for Mark up to this point. And 
And just as I've been reading and studying now as we, as we go into the last six chapters or seven chapters of the book, here's what's happening. Beginning in Mark chapter 9, Jesus reveals what give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow him really means. See, chapter 8 ends with this statement. This is what it looks like. If you really want to follow me, you have to do these three things. And then what Mark does in the text is, is very, very shrewdly paints this picture of Jesus revealing to us what that means. Because sometimes we can read a text like, give up your own way, and we're like, what does that mean, right? We don't understand what that means. So Mark paints a picture for us of what that looks like. But let's read, let's read the end again of, of Mark chapter 8, um, verses 34 to 38, because it's, it's a setup. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up for your life for my sake or for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? See, Jesus is starting to paint a picture of what it means to give up our own way. Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So again, here's an implication for people who say, I want to follow Jesus, there is an implication. One of the implications is we have to give up everything to follow him. And we ask the question, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that today? What does that mean to give up my own way? And then he says, nothing's worth more than your soul. And the implication here is, if you are ashamed of this message, if this message embarrasses you, if you are afraid to give up things, if you're fearful of giving up things to follow him, if you're embarrassed because of the kinds of things that you have to give up in your life to follow Jesus, what Jesus is saying is when the Son of Man returns, he's going to be ashamed of you. See, this is an, an all-in lifestyle that Jesus is calling his followers to. This is not a half lifestyle. This is not partial submission. This is a full lifestyle. And then let's begin in Mark chapter 9 verse 1. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in power. One of the things I've asked you to do as we've gone through this series is pay attention to transitions. Because they matter. The way Mark is writing this story, the way Mark is telling the story, is recounting the life of Peter is important and transitions are important. So Jesus has just said, when, when he comes again, if you're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of you. And some of you are still going to be alive. And like we then ask the question, right? What does that mean that some people are still going to be alive? That would have been their question. <clears throat> well, that's what we're going to read next. Verses 2 to 13. Follow along. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. 
Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Now, what I really love about this, if we remember that Mark's gospel is, is sort of Peter's account written down, right? Because Mark was, uh, Mark was an interpreter of Peter. Like, I love, I love the way Peter just calls himself out in this story. Then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why did the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? Do you see how Jesus flips the question on them? Forcing them to confront the reality that, that he is not just a Messiah of, of loving and serving and healing and meeting needs. He's a, serve, a, a Messiah who is going to die. He's going to suffer. But I tell you, Elijah's already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. So if we wonder, we read verse 1 and we wonder like, when is this? Um, who's not going to die before they see the kingdom arrive in power? Well, it's the three. It's Peter, James, and John and they just saw it. This is pointing ahead to what's just happened in what we call the transfiguration. It's important to know that the mountain is not an unexpected meeting place for God and his people. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, we would see that the mountain is a place where covenants are made, covenants are entered into, where laws are given. Not coincidentally, it was Moses who met God at Mount Sinai. You can see Exodus chapters 3, chapter 19, and chapter 33. And Elijah actually met God at the exact same place. This is described in 1 Kings 19. Don't miss that. Don't miss the same two people who had met God previously on a mountain were now meeting him here on this one. And you got to love Peter's response. He wants to make new tabernacles, right? Isn't that our response? We hear something and, and we want to honor it. We want to we lift it up. We want to create memorials um, to them. The law represented by Moses and the prophets are represented by Elijah. They want to build a new monument to these things. And they're unsure of who Jesus is. And that, that lack of surety, that lack of confidence in Jesus and who he was is the reason why God shows up in a cloud. Again, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that when Moses went up, to Mount Sinai, what happened? It was a cloud. God came in a cloud. And then he said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And then after that, and I know I'm just telling the story again. I'm trying to just help you understand what's going on. After that, Moses and Elijah disappear. 
and it's just Jesus. And what's so fascinating about that is we don't want to miss the metaphor. See, the Jewish people at this time so looked up to Moses as the lawgiver that they almost worshipped him. Elijah was sort of the ultimate prophet in the Jewish mindset. And what we have just seen happen is Moses representing the law disappears, Elijah representing the prophets disappear, and all we are left with is Jesus. That's what's going on in this story. See, Jesus is now the only one that matters. Jesus is the only one that matters. So when we think about this this question of what does it mean to give up our own way, to give up our own way is to give up our ideas of the law and the prophets. See, to be a follower of Jesus isn't about rules and regulations. And it can be really easy for us as Christians, as people who want to be obedient to God, to make it about rules and regulations, to make it about a checklist, to make it about all the things I have to do and all the things I don't want to do. And reduce, if I'm not careful, I will reduce my relationship with God to rules and regulations. But it's not just we have to die to that mindset. We have to die to the mindset of the prophets. See, we as Christians who follow Jesus, we are not sitting idly by waiting for Jesus to return. We're not just waiting for him to come back. That's not, that's not how we are called to live our lives. We're not waiting for, for some prophecy to finally be fulfilled so we can all get out of here. So we can all move on to the life that God really has for us. And I think some of us get caught up in this, in this waiting. We've become useless here on earth because we're just waiting. We're waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. But when we give up our own way, we're recognizing that we have to follow him and join him in his mission in seeking and saving the lost. See, this is our purpose. And if we're not careful, we will reduce our Christian walk to keeping the law and looking ahead to Jesus coming back. And we should live in hopeful anticipation of that. You know, I can't wait. I can't wait to get out of here. Whatever that means. I can't wait until he returns. I can't wait. I'm excited for it, pumped up and excited about it. And at the same time, I have a purpose in my life. And so do you. So does each person who calls Jesus Lord. We don't just sit at home waiting for him to come back. Let's read verses 14 through 29. When they returned to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up. Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. Whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, 
How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd, that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone at the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. What's so interesting about this is after Moses descends from the mountain, after, remember, after receiving the Ten Commandments to God, um, when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, what does he find? He finds chaos. He finds unbelief. He finds faithlessness. And we see the exact same thing when Jesus descends the mountain. Like the legion of demons who had possessed the garrison a few chapters earlier, this demon who is possessing this man's son is out to kill, steal, and destroy. He is out to ruin this young boy. And you got to love the request of the father. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. You know, this is an honest question. We might sit in judgment over this man and think, how could he not believe that Jesus would heal him? Well, Jesus, the man is essentially saying, hey, your disciples couldn't cast out this, this demon. Can you? If they can't do it, can you? And Jesus' response is simple. Anything's possible if you just believe. And what comes out of, of the man's mouth, and this ought to provide comfort for every one of us. What comes out of the man's mouth is not full-fledged belief. is not 100% conviction and understanding and faith. What comes out of the man's mouth is honesty. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And see, again, this ought to cause us comfort. Because what this means is when we go to God with our requests, if we just have the crumb of belief that God will fulfill his promise and it's in accordance with his will, God will answer those prayers. And some of us are, all of us actually, are works in progress. Each one of us are learning and growing. We're growing in our faith. We're growing in our belief, hopefully more and more and more each day. And I want to encourage you, if you are, if you're feeling, if you're feeling out, 
If you're feeling down and distant from God, I would encourage you to, to pray this same prayer. God, I believe that you can accomplish this thing in my life, but help my unbelief. Help me grow. Help me learn. And I love it when the disciples ask Jesus at the end, why couldn't we cast out this evil spirit? Jesus' response is simple. He says, well, it can only be cast out by prayer. Which leads me to ask a question. I don't know about you. Why didn't Jesus pray? If that's true, if that's true, why didn't Jesus pray? And I don't think that this was a lesson on prayer. I think this was a lesson on remembering from whom and from where your power comes. So because when we, when we try to do things on our own way, on our own power, we will fail. It might look good. We're going to talk more about this in a moment. We're going to talk more about fruit in a moment. The problem wasn't, wasn't that the disciples didn't pray. The problem was they didn't know where their power came from. They forgot who they were. And Jesus is going to remind them that to give up your own way is to give up your ideas of the way healings happen. See, it's God who heals, not us. It's God who heals, not us. Let's read, let's continue verses 30 through 32. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed in the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what they meant. See, Jesus knows that his time is short. So Jesus' primary audience is now his 12 disciples. And he has one message for them. One. One thing that he is going to tell them over and over and over and over again through the rest of the book of Mark. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise three days later. And they don't get that. It says they don't understand and they're afraid to ask. See, to give up your own way is to give up what your idea is of who the Messiah is. The disciples were so wrapped up in who they thought the Messiah was. They were so well schooled in, in the law and the prophets about what Messiah was going to accomplish. that They couldn't see past their own understandings. They couldn't see past their own presumptions. They couldn't see past their own assumptions about who Jesus is. So Jesus is constantly going to tell them the way to give up your own way is to know who I really am. Let's continue verses 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled into a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. These two sentences, these two verses are, are the backdrop for the rest of this chapter. Everything that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time today is, is, is stemming from these two verses. Let's read them again. 
After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? Remember, he knows, parents, when you ask your kids certain questions that you know the answer to, but they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. See, what Jesus is saying is, is true leadership, true being the greatest, is humility. And humility is most found in welcoming little children. Because when we love and we serve little children, we are loving and serving and demonstrating value and worth to the least of these in our society. Yesterday at our Family Life workshop, Zane got up at the beginning and started talking, and, and he said something that, um, that I had immediate gut reaction to. Um, one of the very first things he said was, um, was Satan hates your family. And my initial gut reaction was, whoa, Zane, come on a little strong there, buddy. And then very quickly, my thought was, no, actually, Zane's completely correct. See, Satan, like Satan hates you. Satan hates your family. One of the things we hear a lot, you know, like God has a plan for your life. Newsflash, Satan has a plan for your life. A perfect plan to kill and steal and destroy. And we see the evidence of that in Mark. It's physically manifested in a few demon possessions. But we see Satan's plan manifested throughout the Gospels, manifested throughout the entire Bible. See, I'm going to build on what Zane said. I'm probably going probably to channel him for a minute. Satan hates families and he hates kids. And the last thing that Satan wants is a church that's filled with families and children. It's the last thing he wants. The last thing he wants. Because children and families are evident, uh, evidence of fruit and life. They're demonstrations that we're passing our faith on to the next generation. And that doesn't discount those of us who don't have kids at home. It means we have a responsibility to ensure that we are welcoming to families and children. That we are living out and embodying the things that Jesus is calling us to. And that's why we welcome, serve, and love kids here. See, this allows us to sacrifice ourselves. This allows us to serve a, a, a group of people beyond ourselves. That little area that we've set up over there, like this is evidence that we value families. We're sacrificing space because we think this matters. We think they matter. We think kids are important. And they've, you know what? They've been really, I hate to say well-behaved because they're kids. Things have been in a relative dull roar over the past couple weeks, right? 
For some of you, when you heard we were going to do that, you had all kinds of thoughts. What's, it's going to be anarchy and chaos over there. It's been pretty good. And even when it's not pretty good, see, this is, this is our opportunity to bear with families. This is our opportunities to love and serve people who are different than us in the hopes that they might hear the gospel. So when we give up our own way, we're giving up what it means for us to be the greatest. And what that might look like is we come in here thinking and knowing and believing that not everything that we do here on a Sunday morning or not everything that we do in small group or serving groups or any of the other ways, what we want to do is we want to think that not everything that we do that Westway Christian Church does is articulated around my comfort. It's not all meant for me. It might be meant for someone else. That's what it looks like to give up our own way. How did the disciples respond? I'm glad you asked. Mark wrote it next. John said to Jesus, this is verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. I love this little section so much because it indicates that rather than listen to anything Jesus just said to them, they demonstrate the complete opposite. Jesus, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. We don't know who he is, so we told him to stop. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, isn't it ironic that the very thing the disciples couldn't do just a few verses earlier in casting out the demon of a boy is the very thing that they are upset with someone else for being able to do? Isn't that fascinating? The hard-heartedness of the disciples their complete unwillingness to demonstrate a teachable spirit and a teachable heart. And I think sometimes we can get wrapped up in this mindset like, oh, we're, we just do everything Jesus tells us to do. We would never do these things. And the question that we have to ask is, really? I think if I were Jesus at this point, I would start throwing punches. Like I would be furious with my disciples. But he doesn't. He sits down with them and he teaches. And he tells them that it's not up to the disciples to identify who the real followers of him are. See, Jesus knows their hearts. And for the disciples to give up their own way is to give up their idea of who is in, who is really a follower of Christ and just trust Jesus. Here's verse 42. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. What's fascinating is Jesus is still holding the child. We're tempted to think that Jesus is just using the child as a prop, as an example but Jesus actually loves the child. And what he's telling the disciples is don't be distracted by your pride and your arrogance. 
Don't let other things sway you from your mission. See, you have a responsibility. And to give up your own way is to not be distracted by things that you want to be distracted by. And we live in a day and an age and a culture that is filled with distractions, don't we? Things that are constantly vying for our attention. Like every week there's a new movie on Netflix that I've just been waiting to hit. Like one more distraction. One more thing. We're filled with distractions. Let's finish this chapter in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. We want to remember that our hearts are the source of all evil in the world. Remember, it's not things, evil's not out there. Evil's not a product of something that happened to me in my childhood, although that may have contributed to what's going on in my heart. Evil is not a product of what other people do to me. And if everyone would just, if all those people would stop sinning, the world would be great. Our sin comes from within. And our hands represent our actions. See, we must give up our own way and eliminate the sinful actions of our lives. That's what Jesus is saying. The feet represent where we go. We must give up our own way and eliminate the places, the sinful places from our lives. And this isn't just physical spaces. This isn't just a place where I physically go, but it's my online places. It's what I binge on Netflix. It's in the wandering of our minds. See, each one of these things must be given up and surrendered. We have to cut them out of our lives, and our eyes represent what we see, what we determine has value and worth. We must give up our own way in terms of what we see. We have to give up on those things. The Orthodox Study Bible says this, to bring leaders to servanthood, Jesus requires not physical mutilation, but uncompromising detachment, even from the most precious relationships or possessions if they cause sin. So here's what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that sin is going to kill you, it will steal from you, and it will destroy you. Or you can take radical actions right now and eliminate it from your life. Because either way, according to what Jesus is saying, you're going to die. And you're going either to a place of eternal life or eternal death. And Jesus presents the reality of hell as an unending torment for those who are under God's wrath. Unending. Unending. Eternal. We can't grasp that. Because our mindset of, of torment, like when we put our kids in timeout and they put their nose in the corner, and after like five minutes of whining, it's really more of a punishment for us, right? See, that's, that's not, that's not going to happen. 
God is not going to tire of his wrath because of our choices. And what we're starting to see and what we've been continuing to see in the gospel of Mark is, is Jesus knows exactly who we are. Jesus knows everything about us. And that is both absolutely wonderful and absolutely fearful. Living within that reality of those two things, of Jesus' complete and total knowledge about us, ought to cause him to praise us because when we go and we confess our sin to him, we're not telling him anything he doesn't know. He's not going to increase his, his wrath on us because we've confessed sin. It's actually quite the opposite. See, because he already knows when we confess our sin to us, it's an opportunity for him to love us even more and demonstrate mercy and kindness and grace. Because what he wants us to do is mimic the father of the son. I do believe, help my unbelief. I am a sinner. Forgive me. You know this. Forgive me. Show me mercy. Show me love. Show me grace. And God is not a wicked father. He does. He responds in love. He responds to our honesty in love. Because he knows and he cares. And it's the reason he came. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. And as we read through the rest of the New Testament, what we find is that same hope of resurrection is our hope. That's what we're going to talk about at Easter. That's what we're going to talk about on Resurrection Sunday. The hope of the resurrection, the reason for the resurrection is that we would have new life. And the question that we have to answer is, isn't that really what we want? To have new life? To have a life that's filled with meaning and purpose? An ultimate meaning and purpose. One that proclaims truth and grace and mercy and love to other people? That we could be a purveyor of that in the lives of other people? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that your son Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do without telling us how to do it. Your son Jesus calls us to obedience and then he demonstrates for us what obedience looks like. And he doesn't just demonstrate what obedience looks like so, so we can have something to point to but he demonstrates what obedience looks like so that we might be obedient as well. And we don't do that under our own power and under our own strength. We need you for that. We need an ongoing relationship with you. We need the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us for that to happen. God, for those of us who are so caught up in our own way, I, I ask that, that we would heed these words, that we would see your desire for us 
is to give up following ourselves. To give up doing whatever seems right in our own eyes and follow what is right in yours. What you gave your life to do, what you gave your son to do. To live in obedience, to demonstrate obedience, to show us a way and empower us to do it. It's in your son's end that we pray these things. Amen.